Meet Quay. the Quaymers, one of those not. trends. No. The other one's sis and they like to kiss. No. Meet the Quaymers, one of them's trends. The other one's sis and they like to kiss. No. <laughs> Hiya, I'm Jerry. I'm a trans woman, and my pronouns are she, her. I'm Sarah Kramer. Did you say your last name? I'm. I don't think I did. <laughs> We're the Kramers. And you are? I'm Jerry Kramer. I'm Sarah Kramer. <laughs> and our pronouns are she, she her. her. <laughs> oh, God. I don't know when you're listening to this, but the week we recorded this is the anniversary of me coming out publicly to the world as a trans woman. I have been out now for one full year, mostly hiding in my house because of the pandemic. (laughs) Congratulations. And we're going to talk all about that in a later episode. And it's also the ninth year anniversary of when I had my needle biopsy and I found out that I had breast cancer. And today's episode happens to be all about my cancer diagnosis. So that's a lot of synchronicity. There we were chugging along in our lives and suddenly the rug got pulled out from under us again. The amount of things that we learned from this experience uh, are not going to fit into one episode, but we're going to just start with an overview of what happened. And if you have any questions about something we may have glossed over, Send us a DM on Instagram or email us at info at meetthekramers.net. We will probably come back to some of this uh, in a later episode, but before we continue, we do want to start with a trigger warning. We do discuss cancer, uh, medical procedures, as well as some sexual violence. So please take care of yourself if you do decide to listen. After the assault, I realized, and I'm sure it's not like this for everybody who experiences trauma, but this is how my brain works. I realized that I could choose the dark side, which was depression and negativity and bitterness, or I could choose to come out into the light and shed my shame and work on processing the trauma and work on my trauma responses and what I call panic mode. And so that's what I did. I wasn't going to let the assault destroy me. Eventually I left my therapy group and I found my own therapist and we started working together on noticing when I was in panic mode And then, Jerry, you were tasked with also noticing when I was in panic mode because we were trying to catch it when it happened so that I could work on going from an 11 down to a 2. Sometimes I would just have a classic panic attack, uh, which is where you can't breathe and your hands or your face go numb and you feel like you're going to die. But for me, most of the time, it was just about being overwhelmed. Like I couldn't choose a can of soup without spinning out. And that's not a joke. Like I would become so overwhelmed that the simplest decisions would make me freeze. Um, What did you notice in me when I was... Oh, how unprofessional. Shame on you. Oh, God. (laughs) What did you notice in me when I was in panic mode? It's really... This is a really tough question because a lot of the time you were in panic mode. Well, I was in panic mode 99% of the day. Yeah. For me... It took a lot for me to notice it because you had to. We had to start getting you out of it before I could meet unpanicked Sarah on a like different level. It was kind of nice because when we got you out of it, it's like a much. I don't know if I love the word chill, but it's like a much chiller version of you. And and there's little, obviously, little differences now, like decision making and like little tiny things, like when we plan a trip somewhere. You pack two days before we go instead of three weeks before we go. (laughs) Packing and unpacking and packing and unpacking and packing and unpacking. And it wasn't just panic. It was like I was really controlling. Like I would come pick you up from work. And if you weren't outside, right when I came to pick you up, be so stressed out about it and be honking the horn. Yeah. It was like all kinds of intenseness. Yeah. It was just, that's it. That's a good one. It uh, It was just a constant intensity. And, and so when my therapist said, you know, we got to work on getting you out of panic mode, she gave me a bunch of different grounding exercises. And sometimes it's just as simple as like, you know, noticing your feet on the ground and squeezing your toes and just getting back into your body, feeling your back against the chair and doing some breathing. But when 
I, and this is just me, maybe somebody else too, when I'm super spun out, I find that focusing on slowing down or changing my breath actually gives me more anxiety. I found um, that doing jumping jacks works really well for me, which is why I was doing jumping jacks the last episode, just to get that release. I get some nice breaths into me. It makes me laugh because I feel so ridiculous. And um, that's the one that I use the most when I need a big, quick burst. That activity sort of rewires my brain and I'm able to get myself from like a nine or a 10 down to a one or a two where I should be. But if you're somewhere like a waiting room in a doctor's office and you don't want to be doing jumping jacks in the corner like a weirdo, sometimes I'll do something more passive like square breathing. It's also called box breathing. And I'm going to post a graphic about square breathing on the Instagram feed, but you can also Google it. And there's lots of videos and graphics about how to do it. And actually there's so many different ways to ground yourself. And I think it's like shoes. You just have to try on a bunch of different ways to see which one uh, works for you. And of course you have to practice, 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 because now when I do square breathing, I'll do it like before I go into the grocery store because, you know, things are so stressful right now with pandemic stuff. And and because I practice it so often, it takes me way less time for my body to chill out. And my ner- my nervous system is like, oh, we're doing square breathing. That means I need to calm down. But when I was first working on <laughs> panic mode with my therapist, it was so overwhelming to realize how many times a day that I would be set off. And I remember crying to you thinking like, I'm never going to be normal um, because I had been in panic mode since I was a child and it just seemed impossible that I was ever going to be able to rewire my brain, but it just took a lot of practice and a lot of patience and I could feel things improving. Um, And everything in my life was much less work because I wasn't at 11. When you did then start to notice me spin out, you would just say, I think you're in panic mode. I don't think I would say, I don't think I said I, I think it was, I think it was a do you think this might be panic mode? And then instantly I'd be like, oh shit, it is. I'm talking really fast. I'm not breathing. Yeah. I'm panicky, panicky, panicky. So then that's when the jumping jacks come out or the or the square breathing. It gave me a, a real feeling of power actually because if I am by myself, like, like I always have a little panic attack when I'm in Ikea mm-hmm. um, down in the basement part. And knowing that I have a tool now in my pocket where I can just go in the corner and do some box breathing or, or whatever it is that I need to do. It just makes me feel so much better that I have all these tools in my toolkit. So with all this therapy, I was doing really great and I was doing great at my panic mode and I was doing great with just everything in general. And I feel like I was starting to get a handle on my triggers when it came to sex and we started to get our groove back. I was doing regular therapy. The tattoo shop was doing really well. And this little zine that Tanya and I had created turned into like a real life cookbook that you bought in a store. Uh, We got this book deal and the book outsold all of our expectations. Um, And then we did a sequel called Garden of Vegan. And then I did a solo book called La Dolce Vegan. And then a tiny travel book called Vegan A Go-Go. So the books were selling really well and we started to see some money roll in. And at the same time, I was helping you run Tattoo Zoo. And eventually we bought the shop and everything was going great, but I could feel myself getting really burned out um, with being an authoress. And um, because I I did everything, we've been watching a lot of girlfriends, that's why I called myself an an authoress. (laughs) But I was really getting burned out because I did everything myself, like everything. I maintained the website, I wrote emails back to fans, I did all the social media At the same time, I was testing recipes, buying all the groceries for recipe testing, doing all the dishes, writing books, editing, collaborating on the look of the book with my editors, as well as promoting and traveling around North America and overseas. And it was exhausting, but because I was running on panic mode energy, like it's not sustainable long-term. You know, panic mode is for running away from danger like a dinosaur. It's not for daily life. Um, And then I opened up a retail store, but I feel like you told me to do it. I want to say that (laughs) it was your idea because I I really think it was based on your love of that tiny space. I think when the space came up, 
you were like, I've always wanted to have a store in that space. And then we brainstormed from there. My version of this story is that because the books were so popular that we had people coming into the shop all the time because we're a tourist town and people would come here on a holiday and that they would want to meet me and sign their books and take pictures. And you were like, you need your own place where people can come and come say hi to you so that they're not bugging me at the shop. Yeah, that, like probably somewhere in the middle. <laughs> and then I found this little tiny space um, that was up for lease in uh, Market Square. And it was, by small, I mean, it was like seven feet wide and maybe 25 feet long. It was like a little tiny shoebox. One wall was all glass. Originally, I thought the store would be like a office space where I could like do all my work. People could come and visit me and maybe they'd buy a cookbook. But the store ended up turning into something that I wasn't quite expecting. So here's an example of how jam-packed everything was. I opened the store. Um, so that means fixing it up, advertising, negotiating the lease, ordering products, maintaining the store, etc. And then it's a lot of work. And then I was helping at Tattoo Zoo. Plus I was working at the same time on a vegan iPhone app, which is now defunct. Like any project that I do, the budget is really small. So I was doing as much of it myself as possible. I think I did like 75 food styled photos. Plus we did videos. So I wrote the copy and organized the food and made myself look presentable. We did the lighting. Jerry, you helped with the filming. And then I did all the editing of the videos and put them up on YouTube. And in some of the videos, when I look at them, I can see that I'm on the verge of tears because I was completely overloaded with work. But my desire for success sort of trumped any self-care. Around that time that I opened the shop, I also went to England to see my mom's side of the family, who I hadn't seen since I was a teenager. And my favorite band in the world, the Go-Go's, were on tour. So I went to New York and L.A. to watch a bunch of their shows. And it was probably the craziest year I've ever had. And Wait, it was I want to interrupt you there. And I want to remind you that it was not the craziest year. It was the wildest summer because all of that happened in two months. It couldn't have all happened in two months because... In three months. <laughs> okay. Like, okay. that's it. Okay. It was the summer. I don't really don't remember a lot of it because I was so focused on just getting all my work done for that day because the next day's work was waiting for me. And if I missed anything, then there would just be an avalanche of more work. So when I opened the shop, what I didn't anticipate, much like the books, was how successful the little store Sarah's Place would be. By the way, I named it Sarah's Place because my mom had a, her own children's show on CBC in the 70s called Sue's Place. So that's why I named it Sarah's Place. But on opening day, I had a lineup down the block and I almost ran out of stock on day one. And that's when I realized, oh, this needs to be more of a business. And um, I started carrying more and more products. And basically the store was like a vegan lifestyle shop and probably about 90% of everything in the store was vegan or made by someone that I knew who was also vegan. Basically, I just curated and showcased my favorite products. And I also had an online store. So between walk-in traffic and online, I was incredibly busy. And I also started planning Victoria's very first vegan festival. And I gave myself three months to do it. And we did it. I don't know how, but it was a great success. But Jesus fucking Christ, pace yourself, Miss Sarah. Please. Please. And then that first year, Sarah's Place was so great that I expanded to a larger store in the same complex. And when I moved to the new location, my business tripled and I had to hire staff and was constantly doing ordering to keep up. And it really took over my life. And I'd, I'd worked retail for many, many years before the cookbooks. So it was right in my wheelhouse and I loved every frantic second of it. But I did start to notice that I was feeling incredibly exhausted. Also, look at all the stuff I was doing. Like, of course I was exhausted. So I just kind of waved it off to my schedule. I don't think I ever took a day off because when I wasn't working at Sarah's Place or doing the hundred billion other things that I was doing, I was helping you with the tattoo shop. So one night we were watching TV and I felt like a lightning bolt of pain just like shoot through my chest, just like, and it made me yelp because it was really intense. And so I felt my breast and it felt kind of weird, like lumpy, 
but I had my period at the time and I figured it was just that because my breasts were very dense and I would go up or down a cup size depending on where I was in my cycle. So I waited a few weeks and my right breast was still, it just felt weird. I didn't have any more pain, but I did take a good look at my breasts right after a bath. And that's when I noticed that I had a dimple and I knew right away that a common sign of breast cancer is a dimple. So I went in to see my GP and he felt around my breasts and he said, they are really dense, but that's nothing new. It's probably just a doctor irritation from your wire in your bra. So let's, but let's send you for a mammogram. And then we went to England mm-hmm. <laughs> because we had this trip planned to see my family. England was great because I got to introduce you to my mom's side of the family because they'd never met you. Mm-hmm. And it was a really fantastic trip. But the undertone of it was I still had this lump and I could feel it. And I, I don't think we talked about it. I don't think you told me at all. But you knew about the lump. I don't think so. What? Maybe you told me in passing, oh, there's kind of a lump and it's nothing or, but it was not anything I spent any time on. And really? the next part of the story, it was a complete surprise for me. Really? Really. So we came home from England and I went for my mammogram and the technician uh, couldn't find anything. And I explained that I had this weird sort of Lego feeling kind of lump. Um, so she ordered an ultrasound. They did the ultrasound. They still couldn't find anything because my breast tissue was so dense um, and it was hard to see through the tissue. Uh, so they brought in a doctor and he looked at everything and he said I, he couldn't see anything on the, uh, on the ultrasound either. And I said, well, feel this. And I took his hand and I showed him where the lump was. And he was like, okay. Uh, decided to do a needle biopsy. And then I knew it was bad because after the doctor finished the biopsy, he shook my hand but he also held my arm with the other hand and held onto it for a long time and said, the results are going to go to your GP. I wish you lots of luck. And he was still holding my hand and looking at me when he said that. And maybe he was being nice, but my heart just kind of dropped into my stomach. And then it's kind of a blur. I was diagnosed with infiltrating ductal carcinoma in my right breast And then once you step on that cancer train, which is like a high-speed train with very few stops, all you can do is hold on and hope you don't fall off. And I remember my GP talking to us on a Friday and saying it looked like cancer. It was the next day. like Was it the next day? It was the next day. Okay, I have no idea. And he said, it looks like cancer, but the results will be in on Monday. And then we had all weekend to stew about this non-information that this fuckhead gave us and my friends and family were freaking out because we told them we should not have told anybody until we had actual information. That's true. I don't know why he told me that on a Friday when he didn't have any information. Like, wait till Monday, dude, when you have information. Why do you think he did that? Do you? I think it's, uh, uh, I think it's like some kind of tactic. I think he said that because... He saw the test that you were given. He knew what the likely outcome was of the whole situation. And I think what he was doing was preparing us for the worst. Well, on Monday, I called the doctor in the morning and I went full Karen on the receptionist because my appointment wasn't until four o'clock in the afternoon. And I just, I got up and in the morning and I said, I'm sorry, I'm not waiting. I'm coming into the office right now. I'll see whatever doctor you have available because I don't care who gives me this information. They thankfully got me in right away. And then the GP said, I mean, I don't really remember what he said, but basically you have breast cancer. And then the rest of the appointment was like Charlie Brown's teacher. It was just like, wah, 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 wah. Do, you, do you remember what no. he said? You don't remember anything? When I think about it, it was just like this. Like, that's it. Yeah. My ears are ringing. Well, when he was talking to us, I had this deep, dark thought bubble up and I I thought, I deserve this. And then I was like, whoa, why did I think that? Like, I don't know whose voice that was. It was Jamie. We're not talking about Jamie yet. Nobody knows who Jamie is, (laughs) but it was fucking Jamie. But why do you think Jamie said that? Jamie hates us. Jamie Jamie said that because Jamie hates you. (sighs) We're going to talk about Jamie in another episode. And then things got really intense because I was fast-tracked and 
to me, it felt like it was like 12 or 14 days from my diagnosis to getting the mastectomy, but you think it was more like a month? Yeah, I feel like it was a month. Whatever it was, it was a really short short period of time where we had to make all these hardcore medical decisions almost right away, all at the same time while we're learning this new language, which is like cancer stuff. There are so many words that we just didn't even know what they were. Blah, 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 jargon, 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 cancer jargon, cancer jargon. What do you want to do? What's your choice? And it's like, huh. Yeah. I needed a plan. Like I was so desperate for a plan and everything that the doctors were saying was so wishy-washy because, and I wish someone had told me this, but they can't give you a treatment plan because first they have to take out the tumor. They take the tumor and they do all their science equations based on my tumor, my age and my genetics and my health history. And then the treatment is designed specifically for that person. (laughs) But nobody told me that. So I was just like, what's the plan? What's the plan? Because guess what? I went into full panic mode again. And I remember saying to my therapist, I'm in panic mode. I'm in panic mode all the time. I'm trying not to be What if I do chemo and I go into panic mode? And she was just like, it's okay. If you disassociate while you're doing chemo, it's okay. It's just, you just have to get yourself back into your body when it's over. I have a memory of going to the surgeon. We had like a 30 minute consultation consultation where we talked about what he needed to do to save my life. And I remember going through all five stages of grief in that 30 minute consultation. So it was like, Denial, anger, bargaining. I remember saying like, can't you just take the tumor, but like leave the breast? And he's like, he said, if I take out the tumor and the surrounding tissue, because they have to do that, they have to take a margin, you're going to be left with a breast that looks like a dog took a big chunk out of it. And then he said, and it's not going to be very appealing. (laughs) That made me really mad. Anger. And then I got really depressed and I was just, I just felt like, I I have no choice here. And then the the fifth stage kicked in and it was just acceptance because I realized that my panic mode bullshit of like trying to be controlling or it just, I just had to surrender. I had some great advice from a friend. She'd gone through breast cancer maybe like a year or two before me. And she said, do everything the doctors tell you. I do a lot of hospice visits with women with breast cancer and many of them have gone the natural route. And I know you like alternative medicine, so but I'm begging you to just do everything the doctor says because I don't want to see you in hospice. And then she also said to me to not future trip. And I was like, what's that? It's like where you think about all the things that could happen. I could die. I could have complications. I could blah, blah, blah. And if you spend your whole time rehearsing for tragedy, it takes so much more energy out of you. Um, and you need that energy to get through treatment. You have to prioritize where your energy goes. One of the other things that we learned in a like, so you have cancer class um, that they have at the BC Cancer Agency when they're getting you prepped and ready so that you know what's going to happen with your treatment is that a lot of marriages break up due to the stress and trauma of cancer treatment. And again, here we were again with this thing that we were like, we were determined to not let this obstacle get in between us Mm -hmm. and our marriage. So we really focus on um, keeping our communication open and flowing because without healthy communication, you don't have anything. We did go see a therapist at the BC Cancer Agency. She said to us, you two are doing great. You don't need to see me. Just give me a call if you need anything. And we were like, oh, we're doing great. And so we were just like, we don't need to have a counselor. But she did us a real disservice because we really needed to talk to someone and download everything that was happening to us. Mm. I mean, even if we just went and saw someone like every two weeks or something, it just would have been so much better Mm. because instead we just put on our like us against the world jackets and we just, we just did it together. Barreled through. Barreled through. Were you rubbing my back because you feel like I'm tense? I was just a little concerned that maybe you are winding yourself up by revisiting all of this stuff. I am winding myself up a little bit. That is true. It's true. I am getting a little tight in the chest. So what, am I just talking really fast? I just feel like you're, yeah, I just feel like you're just kind of spinning up a little bit. You're trying to get through it. You're also spending some time back there. And I think it's really like easy to 
I'm activated. Yes, that's the word. Please enjoy this brief interlude while our host does some jumping jacks. When you do cancer treatment and you're someone who has, like me, who has PTSD and has control issues as a coping mechanism, last episode we talked about fight or flight, freeze and fawn, surrendering yourself to treatment is really difficult. You can't control anything. Your doctor is always late. You have to wait for your pills. Your hair falls out. You have to remove part of your body so you can live. Your life becomes consumed with appointments and side effects and on and on and on. And I was really like pushing against it. And then I had this light bulb moment that made me realize that like this cancer current is too strong. You can't swim against it or you're going to drown. And so I just surrendered to it and just went with the flow. And that doesn't mean that you don't advocate for yourself because we had to do that a lot. And we had some issues with like my oncologist's assistant. She wasn't writing down that I was having breathing problems after my chemo. And it wasn't until I ended up in the ER that my oncologist was like, what's going on with you? And I told her like, we are in the weeds. We feel lost and we feel like we don't have support from you. And then to her credit, uh, we never saw her assistant again. And she saw us every appointment after that. But if I hadn't spoken up, I don't think we would have received the kind of care. That's probably true. That we did. We have lots of stories um, about having to advocate during that time. And we'll probably talk about that in another episode. But I will say that when you're doing cancer treatment, advocating for yourself is really tough because it takes all of your energy just to get through treatment. So if you have a partner or a friend um, or a parent that you trust to be an advocate with you, um, it makes it a lot easier. The mastectomy was a total brain fuck. And I was having a really difficult time coming to terms with the fact that I had to lose my breast because I love my breasts. They were beautiful. And I kept using really hard language to describe it. I'm just going to say trigger warning. Um, and I would say stuff like, I have to mutilate myself, or I'm cutting my tits off, or I don't know. Do you remember other language that I used? I don't, but I remember the feeling of you saying those words, because even now when you say that, I hate it. It's such a, it's such a terrible way to talk about yourself. It's violent. It's, it's really violent, and it, and it's not truthful, right. because you're not just doing that. For no reason. Like, I think you actually put your hand on my arm and said, I need you to stop saying these words. I think you said something like, we are cutting out the cancer so that you can live. Right. Let's look at it that way instead. Right. Instead of focusing on the good parts of your body that you were losing, we were reframing it so that you would talk instead about the bad parts that were leaving. Right. Like when you said that, it just was like a little bell went off in my head and it really reframed everything. And then suddenly I was able to like wrap my head around my surgery as a positive. Like I was ready to do it and get that cancer out of my body. And I had to actually change my attitude about a lot of stuff because I don't know what it's like everywhere else, but in, uh, at the BC Cancer Agency, they tell you <laughs> their little in their little booklets that they give you that the People who do well during treatment are the ones who stay positive and all the pictures are of people smiling. That information never sat right with me because fuck you. Nobody deserves to suffer or die because they have a bad attitude. But maybe I was also just really mad that I had cancer. I don't know. But anyway, I, I did have to reframe my, my brain for a lot of stuff because, because of me being a vegan cookbook author and because I'm always promoting this healthy lifestyle, I had a lot of people coming at me with like alternative ideas about how I could get better. People saying like, did you know that you can squeeze an apple with your left hand and touch a battery with your right hand and that'll get rid of your cancer? Like so much crazy stuff was coming at me. And I had customers come in and be like, well, you're not gonna do chemo, right? That's poison. That's poison for your body. And I was just like, Thank you so much for that information. I'm going to Google it 
And then I would just shut down the information, the conversation because don't, just don't do that. Just don't do that to people. Right. And I know that them approaching me with all this information is just about them showing love and concern, but I was already so amped up with panic that it, it just, it honestly, it just made things so much worse. I remember being really afraid when you were first diagnosed and you first started talking about the naturopathic oncologist that we went and saw because you had been doing a lot of alternative medicines to try and fix and... I had some stomach issues. Stomach issues. And you'd been doing it for a while and it wasn't really working. And I was really, really worried that you were going to go down that path in regards to the cancer. And I was definitely on your friend's side when when they said that because I wanted you to definitely please give Western medicine a chance with this thing because I am so scared about my wife. So another thing that I had to do to shift my thoughts was to not think of chemo as poison. Um, but instead I looked, I would visualize it as those little cartoon scrub bubbles that sort of come in to the bathtub and go, Wee! and they clean your bathtub. Um, and so when they would administer the chemo, I would visualize those scrub bubbles, um, like scrubbing my insides and cleaning out the cancer. So I, ha- I had to look at it as a positive because I think if I thought of it as poison, I think it would have poisoned me. And it was the same for my mastectomy because when you when you told me that I needed to reframe my wording, it just, it suddenly made so much sense. I actually blogged about my cancer experience on my website, govegan.net. And you can type into the search function, I have bad news. And that's the first post about my cancer. If you want to read about my journey, you can start from there. But if you don't mind, I just wanted to read a little excerpt from my blog about when I went into surgery. Um, So that before they wheeled me in, my nurse put in my IV and then she put her hand on my arm and she said, talk to your body before you go into surgery. God bless you. And I was like, okay, uh, I don't believe in God. I don't know what you're talking about. And then they wheeled me away and they stuck me in a hallway to wait for my doctor. And so I was just sitting there in the hallway waiting and I was really trying to not freak out. Um, And so I did some square breathing and that calmed my body down. And then I talked to my body and I said, dear body, thank you for being healthy. I know right now we have cancer, but we're going to cut it out today and it's not going to be easy, but I know we're going to be okay because I take good care of you and you are a strong vegan superstar (laughs) with magical unicorn healing powers. We can do this. And then I took another breath and I had a little talk with my cancer. And I said, dear cancer, we've only known you for a few weeks. And while you've brought a lot of fear with you, you've also brought me a lot of love. Thank you for showing me how much my family and my friends love me. Thank you for showing me how much impact I've had on other people, even people I've never met. Because of you, I've had an avalanche of love and support from my fans and my customers And they've shared stories with me and told me how my books and my work have touched their lives. And it's been really humbling. And I'm so grateful. Oh, and one last thing, Cancer. We are cutting you out of our lives today because you are not wanted or needed here anymore. You've overstayed your welcome and it's time for you to go. Please leave without a fuss. I promise to remember all of the good things you brought me. Now get the fuck out of here. And then I have my surgery. And... For reference, my tumor was about the size of an avocado pit. It was hiding behind all of my dense breast tissue. And what I want to let you know about that is that my whole life, doctors have told me that I have dense breast tissue. Some of them joked that I wouldn't need a bra when I was 80 because my breasts would stay perky. And what they didn't tell me is that it's more difficult to detect breast cancer. And I wish someone had told me that instead of making a joke about my bras. So if you have dense breasts, please learn how to do a self-exam. And here's the most important part. You know your body better than anybody else. So if something doesn't feel right, advocate for yourself. And then based on that tumor from my mastectomy, I did what I call the full meal deal. So I did mastectomy, uh, then chemo, radiation. And then I was supposed to do a long-term medication called tamoxifen, but I had a bad reaction to it. 
And then we decided to stop that final step of tamoxifen and end my treatment. And I think from diagnosis to the end of my tamoxifen, it was like a year or like 14 months, maybe. I forgot to say that I closed Sarah's place when I was diagnosed. I had many lovely friends and customers encouraging me to keep it open, but I knew that I needed to focus on me and my health, and I didn't want to worry about anything else but myself. And I don't regret closing it, uh, even though the store was a lot of fun, and I sometimes I miss it. Uh, the other thing that helped us was we had critical illness insurance um, from when we bought life insurance. So we were able to put a claim in, and we used that money to pay off all of our debts We put Sarah's place into storage so I could focus on my treatment. And by Sarah's place, I just mean all of the stock because I had a lot of stock. And thank dog, we live in Canada. So we didn't really have to make any medical decisions based on what we could afford. Everything for the most part was covered by Medicare. And it was an incredible gift to not have to stress about money during my treatment because we had a lot of other things to stress about. And if money was part of it, it just would have been a lot. So this is us telling you to get some insurance if you can, because you never know. And my treatment was, and I don't want to scare anyone, but treatment is intense. And especially because I'm the person who, when you read the medication package and it says one in 10,000 people have a reaction to this, well, that's me. (laughs) So I've always been sensitive to medication and this was no different. I had I had a lot of, I had a rough time. Let's just say that. Um, the surgery left me with tight scar tissue. The chemo, besides draining my immune system to kill the cancer cells, was hard on my joints and my hips and my hands. Um, I still have a little bit of neuropathy. And the chemo kills fast-growing cells, so I lost all of my hair. And I do mean all of my hair, if you know what I mean. And including my nose hair, which was weird because my nose would drip. And I was like, why is my nose running all the time? And it was because (laughs) I didn't have any nostril hair. But then to add insult to injury, the chemo uh, also kicked me into menopause. So no more periods, but instead I have hot flashes. And I don't know which is better, but... And then the radiation burned my chest quite badly. It was a rough heal. And then the scar tissue from the surgery and the scar tissue from the radiation left my chest wall really sensitive and incredibly tight. And even eight years out, I'm still doing regular physio to kind of break it all apart and get better movement. And then the final step for my treatment plan was to was to take tamoxifen, which I was supposed to take for 10 years. And tamoxifen blocks cancer cells from replicating and it helps you not have a recurrence, although it can happen. Um, But it's a really powerful drug and I, I really wish I could have taken it, but it really kicked me in the ass. And we didn't anticipate how much it would fuck me up because we thought, okay, well, we've got through treatment and now I just have to take this pill. But I had a really big reaction to it. It not only exacerbated my pain from the chemo that was still sort of lingering, um, the tamoxifen made it almost impossible for me to walk upstairs, um, get off the couch, really do much of anything. And they kept telling me to hang on and wait and just wait for the side effects to to, fa- to phase out. They, they kept saying, if you can make it to six weeks, the side effects will go away. And it just got worse and worse and worse. And I felt like I was drowning. At that point, I felt like the tamoxifen was the worst part of the treatment, or maybe it was just cumulative. I don't know, but I, I kind of fell apart. And they had me take a break off the tamoxifen and I bounced back right away and I felt pretty good. And then they... Uh, put me on a different kind of tamoxifen and a different brand uh, of the same pill at half the dose. And almost immediately, I was back to severe pain. I could hardly walk. You would find me at three in the morning in the bathroom, sobbing in pain and panic. And then you'd shove an Ativan into my mouth and put me back into bed. And then I started to have suicidal ideation, which is something that I've never, ever had before. And I'm so glad I told you, Jerry, because that's when we had a long talk with the oncologist and we decided to end treatment right there. From your perspective, what was it like when I was on tamoxifen? I remember you being in bed. I would leave for work and you would be in bed. I would come home and you would be in bed. And I think this was 
if I remember right, we were also moving the shop or building the new shop while you were doing that. So I would get up in the morning, I would go to work, I'd work a full day at the, at the shop, and then I would go to the new shop and do a couple hours worth of building. I would come home and it would be like, what did you do today? Did you have a bath? Because you would be still in bed. And I hadn't really been like that through the chemo whole the time. whole time. But that, yeah, that tamoxifen. Yeah, it was, I think it was the most worrisome for me. And also at the same time, I had become addicted to Ativan. Um, and because of everything that was still happening to me physically, I was not ready to stop because the Ativan was helping me. I was I was only taking it to sleep and if I had a severe panic attack, but mostly for sleep. And so uh, it was helping me sleep a solid seven hours a night because it shut off my brain. And it was the honestly the first time in my life that I was able to have a decent sleep and no dreams, no thoughts, just black. And it was such a nice place to be. And that's when we realized that it was time for me to stop taking it. But I, I want to jump in here. And I also, and I want to say about your Ativan addiction, when you were diagnosed, we went in to the doctor and we said, we are flipping out. What can we do to help this? And he wrote us a script for Ativan immediately with no instructions. And we just went home and started taking them. Of course, looking back, we're like, yeah, idiots, you can't just take drugs like that every day and not get addicted. But at no point did anyone say, wow, those 30 Ativans should last more than 30 days. I am so disappointed in the doctors for not just sort of saying like, hey, take these when you're feeling overwhelmed or maybe take this every so often instead of just like, here you go, take them. Well, I had a running prescription at the, at the, at the drugstore. I would just like use them as I needed. I mean, I only took one, one a day, but every you, day, every day. And also you build up a tolerance to it. So then they kept having to bump me from like 0.5 milligrams. And then at the end of my Ativan addiction, I was think I was up to two milligrams a day, which they say isn't a lot, but getting off of it was really difficult and I think we could probably talk about that in another episode because it took a lot yeah. to get me off of it. So we had that long talk with our oncologist and she says, you know, your reaction to this medication is not typical. <laughs> and we said, we need to stop because my quality of life is more important than this medication because I really felt like I was headed to a wheelchair. And it was scary to stop because... I think at one point she said to me, I don't want you to get cancer again. I want you to take this medication. And that really flipped me out. And then she, you know, she's a science nerd. And so she was telling me percentages and this percentage of people who take it, blah, blah, blah. But I, I think like it, none of that made sense to me because I'm not a math person. And I think you broke it down for me. I think we just did a little kind of statistics thing where we just sat down and did the math. I think I did the math for you. And I said, this thing is, this part of your treatment was two in five to make you better. This one is one in five. This one is a quarter of the one in five for the last part. And, and we just, I, like, none of that makes sense, but <laughs> I can see it in your eyes. Um, <laughs> math is not my forte. <laughs> but, the, but the thing that we kind of came up with was like, is this the way you want to live? Do you want to live 20 more years like this? Or do you want to live five more years doing whatever the fuck you want? And so we just honestly gave you the same question that we've given all of our pets. Like it's it's a quality of life. If this is going to make you suffer, then it's not worth it. And, and we shouldn't do it. I stopped the tamoxifen again. And then I feel like within a couple of days, I felt myself change. And I think you said to me, hey, there you are. And I was like, what do you mean? And you were like, you're back. Your eyes are bright. It was kind of like I woke up from a from a coma or something. Yeah. And then it took a long time to recover from the tamoxifen. I had a lot of pain. And not like pain, like low-grade lingering pain. 
you know, like right before you get the flu, you just feel achy and you're like something, I think I'm getting sick. It was like that, but all the time. And my body felt like it was 80 years old. And because I felt like I was 80 years old, I started doing Aquafit because it was the only thing that made me feel good was that hydrostatic pressure of the water. It just made me feel light. And anyway, I did a lot of Aquafit just to sort of get my fitness back. But Oh, what I want to say is, is I know a lot of people who take tamoxifen and they're fine. There's no reaction. So I want to say that my reaction to tamoxifen is not typical. And it is a really powerful drug, uh, can really help cancer patients make sure that they don't have a cancer recurrence. So I want to say that if it is part of your treatment plan and you can tolerate it, please take it if you are able I also want to say that most people think that when your cancer treatment is over that you just get on with your life, but all that chemo and radiation took a really big toll on my body and it probably took me another year, maybe two years before I started to feel like myself, kind of. When cancer treatment is over and they release you, they just kind of, they just let you go and it's really disconcerting because you are so used to daily or almost daily contact with like a doctor or a nurse or a technician of some kind. So when they release you from treatment, you just kind of feel like a baby deer. You're just, your legs are all weak and you're not sure of yourself and everything seems really loud and overwhelming. I remember going to a restaurant and because I had been in isolation for so long, I feel like we're all going to feel like this when the pandemic is over, but I had been in isolation for pretty much for a year once I was done treatment and I felt like I could go out, I went to a restaurant and the noise of other people eating and talking was so loud that I had to leave. And it took me a, a little while to sort of toughen up again and get used to all the noises and sounds of, of and the hubbub of people. What was it like for you when treatment was over? Because you, you, you not only were working full time, but you were also my primary caregiver. It must have been a lot. It was definitely a lot. I think full-time is a bit of a, it's misguided. I don't think I was working full-time. I think I was working a lot of the day, but not, I really wasn't working that much. I think I would leave Duck Out probably around four o'clock every day. I know you would take, like, you'd take Wednesdays off or whatever for me to go do chemo. And you were always there on my surgery days. And so you were working sporadically, but we were still running, like, we're still running a business. You betcha. Running the business. Um. When, but when treatment was over, I, well, we kind of just got, when your treatment was over, we almost kind of got right back into the shit. Like we, we decided to move the shop, which was looking back was kind of a big deal because you were not fully functioning. So I had to do a lot of it. And, and we were moving the shop that had been in a location for 25 years, 25 years. So it was a really scary decision. And then the other thing that was happening simultaneously with my cancer treatment was that your dad was very sick. He'd been sick off and on for many years. I think his diagnosis and your diagnosis were almost at this, like cancer diagnosis, were almost at the exact same time. They were very close. His was right before me. Yeah. His diagnosis was nothing like your diagnosis because when he called to tell us, he said, Don't look it up because it's really bad. They're giving me six months. So before you were diagnosed, I was going over to visit him as much as I could, but he didn't seem sick, which was hard for me because I didn't, I didn't understand cancer until you had cancer. I would just go visit him and be like, I don't see this. I don't see how you're sick. But like the culmination of your treatment being sort of finished and then him sort of being at the end of his life, like that was kind of the same time too. I mean, anytime we had, like I had an upswing in my chemo or I had a break in my treatment, we would like go over and visit and then come back and I would do my chemo. It was a lot. Yeah. So it was an incredibly intense time. And while my cancer experience was traumatic in many ways, it helped us realize what we wanted. And instead of running away from the trauma this time, we kind of leaned in and we focused on making some big positive life changes. We wanted a simpler life and a less stressful life. And we wanted more memories and less stuff. We were walking down Fort Street and we saw this sign in a window. It said, for lease, call Joe. 
<laughs> and the space was really cool. It was just like this tiny little 1930s retro looking storefront. And we called Joe and we went and looked at it. And as soon as we walked inside, I was like, this is a tattoo shop. Like everything was so perfect. It was, it was almost perfect. Almost perfect. And so we moved the shop and it was stressful, but it was, but we did it. And yeah. then once we got in there, it felt really good. And then your dad passed yeah. and we went to the funeral. And I remember on the way home, I said, okay, I think we're, we should stop barreling through. We barreled through everything in our lives. And I think it's time to stop. We don't need to do it anymore. And we just need to figure out how to live a better life. I started feeling a little better. So I would work part-time at Tattoo Zoo um, just because we wanted to be in each other's orbit all the time. And Tattoo Zoo started to really flourish because I was able to take some of the load off of your shoulders and um, run the business part of it so that you could just focus on tattooing. And things felt really simple and sweet. And everyone around us was really lovely um, I was getting pressure from my family and my fans, like, when's your next book? And are you going to reopen your store? And what's next for you? And I was like, no, this is it. I'm here with my best friend, Jerry. We're having fun at work and we're walking home together hand in hand. And that's all I want. And then one Valentine's Day, I saw an article in the New York Times and they had a questionnaire called 36 Questions to Fall in Love. And I was like, we have to do this. And it was cool because I read through some of the questions and I thought that I would know what all your answers would be, but I thought it'd be cute to do anyway. And the questions were like, name three things you and your partner appear to have in common or um, what in your life do you feel most grateful for? And then some of the questions got really deep. Like, do you have a secret hunch about how you will die? Or if you could change anything about the way you were raised, what would it be? And then this really fun little quiz turned into a really intense conversation. And I got to hear stories from you that I'd never heard before. And one of the questions sparked a conversation. And then you said, well, you know, I'm gay. And I was like, what? Sound engineering for this episode by Gavin Stacy. We are now four episodes into season one and episode five is going to be a little departure from the norm. We are taking a small break from telling you Jerry's coming out story to do a letters to the Kramers episode. This episode is all about audience participation and that, our tender-hearted listeners, is where you come in. We want to know if you have any questions about the last four episodes. Is there something that we glossed over in our story so far that you want more details about? Honestly, ask us anything and we might just read your letter on air. Send us an email at info at meetthekramers.net or simply send us a DM on Instagram. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>